Hi, I'm Kirsty Gallagher, and this is Give Us Your Goals, the podcast which finds out how some of the biggest names in sport and entertainment go about achieving their dreams. In this episode, I speak to the former SAS soldier, Billy Billingham, who went on dozens of dangerous missions during his 17 years there, before going on to become a bodyguard to Hollywood superstars and then one of the lead instructors on TV's SAS, Who Dares Wins. In our conversation, he tells me why he thinks having the right focus and mindset are the most important factors when looking to achieve any goal and why the biggest obstacle you always have to overcome is time. Give Us Your Goals is a paid promotion by online investment platform, Best Invest. Billy, lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us on Give Us Your Goals. I've been so excited to meet you. I mean, I really have. You are incredible. So SAS Who Dares Wins is my favourite programme. We'll talk about that later. But your achievements are incredible. I want to take you right back to 1991. You joined the SAS then as a mountain troop specialist. Was it a goal for you? How did that happen? Well, joining the SAS was a goal for me, for for sure. You know, I always wanted to be in the military from being a child. You know, I had a, I'd say, a, uh, I wouldn't say a bad childhood. I, I made it a bad childhood. I was, I was a rogue of a child. I needed the military to keep me alive and, and put me on the straight and narrow. So to get in the military was my first goal. That was something I needed. I had to have. So I did that. I joined the parachute regiment. Then after being serving nine years with the parachute regiment, I'd done more or less everything I wanted to do. You know, I'd been around some legends who'd just come from the Falklands. I'd learned from some great people. I'd been in combat myself in Northern Ireland and various other places. And I thought, it's like anything else, you know, you want to challenge and go to the next level. And the next level and the only level above that really is the SES. So friends before me went and, you know, at that particular time, I don't think I was ready because the SES is one of those places you can't go half-hearted. You have to say, I want it. You've got to go for it. You know, you can't, you won't make it else. Anyway, so friends before me had gone and I was at the point in my career where I thought, I need a challenge. I need to go and see. I want, first I wanted to know, am I good enough to be in the SES? Knowing full well, there's, you know, 280 people going each course and probably six or seven maximum will pass. I wanted to know if I was in that group. And that was my sort of goal, to go to selection and just to see if I could pass it. But I did want to be there. I didn't really know a lot. Nobody does know what the work really entailed. I knew it was working at a strategic level, which was making a world difference. And that obviously appealed to me as well. So I decided in uh, 91, uh, end of 91, to go for the first uh, course of 92, the winter course. And that's what I did. I left the depot of the parachute regiment where I went done full circle of training and training young recruits. And that was the next move. So then I went on SAS selection. And it was, I think it was 283 people started and long story short, seven of us at the end finished. I mean, it's incredible. It really is incredible what you have to go through, the process of it. Did you believe you could do it? Uh, Or, I mean, when you were in the sort of parachute regiment in the 1980s, you'd set that goal, SAS, I want to do that, knowing that many don't make it. Did you really believe you could do it? I think I think everybody does, but doesn't. You know, you, you, I think a lot of people are scared to go for it because no one wants to fail, and the rate of failing is massive. You know, you're talking about five percent that get through. I don't want to be one of that. You know, lot that doesn't make it. I want to be one of the people that do it. So I kind of thought, yeah, I can do this, but you just don't know. So I went with the mindset of, I'll take it week by week when I get there. 
And literally by about day three, you're on hour by hour. It, you know, it comes down to just getting through a day's, you get up in the morning, go, right, I'm still here. This is, this is a good sign. So I did believe in myself, but, you know, I think everybody's been in this position, right? You turn up and there's 280 odd guys and you look down the line of people and you think, wow, they all look fitter. They all look bigger. We all do it. You know, and I did exactly the same when I first joined the army in 1983. I looked down the line, I was the skinniest, the youngest, and I thought, I've got no chance. But as the days went by, the numbers got fewer. I grew in confidence. I started to believe in myself. And by about the first couple of weeks of being in, on SAS selection, exactly that. Again, look down the line. They all look fitter. They all look better. And the, the numbers were getting smaller, but rapidly. I think on day two, 80 people had already gone. Eight zero, you know, it failed what they call the fan dance. So it gave me great hope and, and, and lifted me up. And then I started to believe in myself. And, and yeah, so, I, I, you know, I say I thought I could do it. There's always an element of luck to everything you do as well. You know, if anybody goes, yeah, I knew I was going to do it and all the rest of it, we're talking bull, to be honest. It's, it's a challenge and every day is a challenge. Yeah, Billy, what was the difference between those that made it and those that didn't make it? I'll tell you what it is. It's the mind, the mindset. Something I learned, and I'll tell a funny story when I talk about when I joined the SS. I might as well jump forward to that, and it probably explains what it really yeah. is. So when you're going through selection, you know, I knew a couple of guys before me who had gone, and they were, they were kind of big, six-foot fit. You know, I thought, that's what it's all about. You've got to be really one of these tough people. However, so when I got to the end of selection, seven of us fit, uh, finished, and I got told I was going to B-Squadron Mountain Troop. I never climbed anything but stairs in my life, so that was new to me. I was wanted to go to air troop, dive out of planes, because that's what I was used to. But no, they said to me, mountain troop. So anyway, so if I said to you now, Kirsty, right, I've got five SES guys going to turn up behind me in a minute. In your head, you'd probably think, well, it's with six, V-shaped, fit, but whatever. That's what most people think, and I thought that. So I got to the end of selection, and I got sent to B-Squadron. So I, on day one, I walk into B-Squadron, what they call an interest room. It's that where the whole squadron of guys hang out, have coffee, chat, and do all that sort of stuff. In my head, I'm thinking, these guys have been monsters. They're going to be V-shaped, fit, all the rest of it. So I walk into the interest room on day one, and I walk in and I look around and I think, have I walked into the wrong place? Did I just walk into the Edifford Council office? The small <laughs> fat guys, all skinny guys, big noses, bald heads, all sizes and shit. I'm like, this was the SAS. And there's a big guy, particularly big guy, you know, I'll say it, he was fat or looked fat. And he's making a cup of tea. And, you know, he sees me as a new guy and he goes, hey, how you doing, son? I'm like, yeah, good. He goes, you fancy going for a run? And I looked at him and I'm kind of, <laughs> and I thought, yeah, no problem. So off we went. We went for a run. We went out the gate and he's a big fat guy. I saw the sole of his shoe for about 50 meters. I never saw him again. By the time I got oh. back to the interest room, He'd already had a shell, oh, got changed, and it, do it dropped, the penny dropped on that very even first day. And I looked around and thought, you know what? It's about what is in between the, the ears. It's, it's about yeah. the mindset, not about what you look like and the image. And it was out of that. And then I met the sergeant major, who I thought was a guy coming to enter the bins. He walked into the interest room. He's got a roll-up cigarette in his mouth. He looked like cat weasel and very old to me. And I thought, who's this guy? And he turned out to be the main man. Next thing, he's given a set of orders and we're off to a foreign land doing amazing, crazy stuff and coming back. And I was like, wow. And then the penny dropped. What is different about people that get, eventually get there? It really is a mindset. First, you've got to want to do it. 
Secondly, you've got to be able to sort of, I know it's an old cliche, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And it is a cliche, but I mean, you really do. You've got to accept that what you're going to do is going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. You've got to persevere, but you can do it. Or you, you've got a good chance of doing it as long as you, you, you go for it and believe, start to believe in yourself. You know, if you go half-hearted, as I said, right, the very start when we started, you ain't going to do it. And these people are looking around and going, there's something very special about them. And to finish that little bit of story of saying why they are like they are. So, you know, I've only been there two days and no one really knows me. And this old guy before was emptying the bins, that's all amazing. And he goes, guys, situation going on. These people have been captured. They might get killed. We've got 48 hours. Let's go and save them. And I'm looking at all these people going, what? And he sits around the table and everybody's there. And I'm sat there and he looks at me and I've only been there a day. And he goes, what's your name, son? I went, Billy. He went, right, Billy, how are we going to do this? And I went, I hadn't got a clue. But, you know, and he, I sort of come up on an idea and he went, okay, not bad. And then all these guys I talked about earlier, tall, thin, fat, all sat around the table. And it was like watching a jigsaw being put together. They went, hey, timelines, fuel, weapons, systems. And I'm watching, I'm like, wow. These people were just something else. And the next one went on a, a jet going to a country I didn't even know existed. And off we do this job. This is incredible. This is unbelievable. And that was who these people are. And obviously, the, I stayed in the regiment a long, long time, and, and you just see more and more, and you watch it unfold, and every day is different. Every conflict is really different and surreal, but it's just, it, these people are just different. And I guess I'm different. We're wired different. And it's, uh, it's amazing. Listening to you is just fascinating. And you're so, and we can move that and, and, and learn from that in, in all walks of life as well, of course. Uh, I mean, not to be deceived by what we think and, and do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. and, and you're right, mindsets are so important. So you're in the SAS, you, you know, you're, you're responsible, responsible for planning so many sort of and executing strategies uh, all across the world, dangerous, you know, frightening operations. What were your goals then? What, obviously your goal is to, you know, make sure that people are okay and to make sure that you've, you've executed an operation correctly. But for you personally, what, what was it then? What, were your, what was your next? Because that is the, the sort of character you are. It is obviously, I mean, from, you've achieved so much. What's then your goal? Do you know what I mean? What more can you achieve once you're at that high echelon, I suppose? Your, your goal is to succeed, not to fail. Because failure generally means, you know, unfortunately, oh, well, somebody's probably going to lose a life or people are going to lose their lives or a world-changing situation going to happen. I know mean, that sounds ridiculous, but it's true. So your first goal is focus and success. Make it happen. Let's make this happen in the timelines. And the one thing in anything you do in life, which is always something that will be against you, is time. It's always you haven't got time to mess up and do this. And so you've got to always work backwards from the problem coming back towards yourself. The goal would be to, to, to succeed, firstly. Secondly, to go out on an operation, on a job, and come back with everybody that you went out with. You know, that's, that's your goal. Come back yourself and come back with everybody you went out with. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of too sort of layered in, in most sort of goals that you have. It's incredible. And just, you know, when you were doing all of this, I, I mean, you know, were you ever sort of thinking, oh, well, this isn't financially successful enough or this isn't what I, you know, 
because it's because it's hard, isn't it? You 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 you're not earning big bucks. No, it's you're ridiculous. Not, you know, it, it's not one of those. Well, exactly. Uh, we we know what you do. You protect us, but for you guys, you're you're putting your lives on the line. And and what gains do you get from that? We laugh about it, Kirsty. You know because. The thing is, it's like a goal. You've got to want to do it. It cannot be a chore. It cannot be a pain to you. You cannot be unhappy with it because you're not going to give it your best. You're probably never going to reach any goals. The goal with being in the SAS and being in the regiment was, firstly, it's a one in a million job. This, on, the, on the planet Earth, there's 1% of us or less. So it's a great place to be. You don't do it for the money. The reward is knowing. And, and, and you know, fortunate or unfortunate, the only people generally who do know is us. I go to bed at night going, knowing what I've done, which unfortunately you can't share, you're not even with your partner most of the time, but knowing in your own heart, that's, that's the uh, payback, that's the, ch- the paycheck. The actual real financial paycheck is terrible. The military, I mean, I think all my army career, by mid of the month, I was in an overdraft for the whole of my career, even in the SAS. And here's a funny story for you, right, which is you talk about finances. You, so we did the job for the love of the job. I enjoyed doing it. It meant so much to me and every single person there. And you pay the sacrifice is the ultimate sacrifice for sure. You're paying with, I'm going to pay with my life possibly, possibly, hopefully not, of course. I'm sacrificing being away from my family. I'm sacrificing being away from my kids. You know, I'm at that stage now where I've got a couple of grandkids and I'm trying to be a parent now because I wasn't when I should have been because I was away. I was literally on a war footing all the time. I never saw my kids grow up. I got the classic, you're going away for 10 days and came back five months later. Oh, it was ridiculous. So, so it's not about finance. It's not about the money. The paycheck for us and the winning of the lottery is, you know, I can get on and go, right, that village, we saved that village of people by doing what we did. We saved that particular person. We changed that direction of misery for that country by doing what we did. And, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, you can't really talk about a lot of stuff. Some of it you can now. And you have a beer and you just laugh, not laugh about it, but you, it comes up, you know, you go, do you remember? And it's, it's just, it's a nice feeling. We don't need a pat on the back, but you, you, can't, you kind of feel to yourself, it was worth it. Would I change it if I went all the way back? I'd probably, I wouldn't volunteer for as many of the jobs that I did volunteer when I told my wife at the time before we got divorced was I had to go. I didn't have to go. I wanted to go. You know, and I think a lot of guys are guilty of that as well because I loved what we were doing. It wasn't about money. I literally was in an overdraft till I left the military. You know, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. It was not about the money. It makes you freaking miserable. The more money you have, the more sort of greedy and stupid most people become with it. Were you ever thinking, I need to plan for the future? You have got children. You have now got grandchildren. Surely there was a point where you thought, yes, I'm doing this for the love of the job. You're either in it or you're not in it. I mean, that's basically the basis of this. But were you ever at a point like, you know, I really need to plan for the future. I need to perhaps move on to do something where I can earn that money. Or was it... I mean, obviously now you do so many different things, you know, you are so successful, but was there a point earlier in your career where you were going, gosh, how do I, how, how do I deal with everything going forward, my future? I don't think, no, I, I'll be honest. And I think I, I could talk for most people in the military, especially the SAS, is no, we don't. We, we're not that good at that forward planning of taking care of us and taking care of our families. We're so engrossed in what we're doing and, doing what we think is the right thing. And it's only, it's as you come towards the end of your career, like every, everything you do, it doesn't matter who you are, you have to hand that baton down to the younger generation at some stage, you know, and we never want to do it. 
but you have to. And and then I think when you get to that stage where, like, as the sergeant major, you've had two years of that sort of a, an unbelievable job, probably war fighting as ours was, you've got to move on to something else. I think it was at that point then when I started to think, hang on a minute, at some point now I've got to be thinking of the future, I've got to leave, I've got to earn some money. My kids, because the army does, the military takes care of you in other ways, not with, not with finances, you know, things like, You've got a house if you need it. Your kids are, you know, taken care of. You've got medical cover. You've got dental cover, all this sort of stuff. So you don't really worry about it until you, you start thinking about, there's got to come time now. I've got to start a new career. I've got to, I've got to leave at some stage. Then you start to get ground rush and panicking a bit, thinking, wow, what am I going to do? Fortunately, I would say, for most of the guys in the SF world, Special Forces world, there's a thing called a circuit, and it's mainly security-based work outside of the, the military. It's kind of the same thing, military style, IR style environment work, and it's very good pay, very good pay compared to what we've earned. So you kind of always think, well, it's no big deal. I'll, I'll get one of those jobs. And to a degree, you will get it. But once, once you've got that job, you soon realize the money is not worth the sacrifice now you're doing. You're out in probably hostile environments again, and you haven't got the support of the people. The people around you don't know as well as you know in the regiment. You can't really trust. You're still putting yourself out there. You're still being away from your family. You're getting a bit more money. But then I think I'm at the point in my life now where I'm really seriously starting to think about finance and, and what I'm going to leave behind. I've been very selfish, really, and very greedy. And all I've cared about is doing this great job and forget the, not forget the kids. That's why I never do that. But I haven't thought deep enough about, hang on a minute, if something happens to me tomorrow, what do I hand back to my children? What I'll tell you what I have handed back to them, and I think everybody should hand back, which is more important than money, is memories and experiences. I've took them on journeys all over the place. You know, education to me is travel and real life experiences. You can read as much as you want. You can get as many degrees as you want. It doesn't mean nothing. There's no foundation behind it. So I'll give them that. If I die tomorrow, I know for a fact, you know, you might laugh at me now. I took my two daughters to Baghdad. I took them to Haiti. I've took them all over the globe. I've put, sent them everywhere. And that was in the eye of... The bad times of 2008, I think that's what led to my divorce, to be honest. But, you know, but I, get, I didn't put them in the way of danger. I do, I do a sensible risk assessment as well. But I took them on these journeys. So I give them these experiences and these tools and, and, and things that I thought was valuable to them, and they are. I taught them the value of money because I was learning it myself. But, you know, but I am now, like literally like now where I am in my life, I'm like, hang on a minute. I want to leave more than that now. So if I died, and I want to make sure there's something there so that my grandchildren get a decent education. Should there be a problem, there's money to get medical aid. I'm, that's where I'm thinking now. That's my goals now is to have that found. It's a bit late in life. People look and go, well, that's a bit stupid at your age. Well, it is, but at least I've still well, got an opportunity. I don't think it is. Well, I don't think it is. I think you, you've been doing what you're doing. You've, you've, got, you've achieved so much, and I think there is a point at like my age, your age, where you go – well, I mean, my children are, you know, whatever, twelve and fifteen. But I'm, I'm, I'm sort of slightly panicking now because I think you, you really come to a point where you go, right? I really need to get my ducks in a row, don't you? Because you can be all very all bumbling along, uh, but, but actually, realistically, you're right. What if something happens? What do you do? You've got a charity that you run with your wife, which I'd love to talk to you about. I mean, incredible. Incredible. How did that come about, Billy? Right. So 
after leaving the military, I had various jobs. I worked as a bodyguard for a bit, which was great, you know. So I got kind of got established. Then we had a, I was a partner in a business, a company, security company out in Iraq, which made a fair bit of money. And having been in the SF world, one thing that you do learn is, you know, what is valuable to you. And the biggest value value to us is is family and friends, you know. And having fortunate or unfortunate, I've been around the globe in conflicts all over the place. And you see the death and the destruction, the surreality of it all and all that sort of stuff. And you realize how sad it is for the, the normal people, the people that cause all these problems that we get involved in and all the rest of it. But you see how vulnerable people really are around the globe and how nice people really are around the globe. So my point is learning all those lessons of hearts and minds in, in, in all these worlds, places of horribleness and destruction and conflict, you become very charitable. And we were very charitable. And working in Iraq, you know, we made sure we had the regimental ethos of arts and minds where we're in somebody else's country. So give them the work. We can get, give our, ourselves jobs. We'll give the people that need the work the work. So we did that. We built schools. We built roads. We, we did whatever we could. We built hospitals. We gave back. We become charitable. We gave back. So 2010, I'm in Iraq. I'm in the bar after a night of being on the streets of Baghdad where there'd been 30, 40 people killed that day. You kind of get used to that number. And, and I'm having a beard in the bar. And I'm looking at all the TV screens. And you know what happens when a, a news flash comes up? Like yesterday, God, God bless her, the Queen dying. A news flash comes up and everybody stops, watches the news and goes, what's, what's going on? Well, I'm in the bar and a news flash comes up. And it's this place in the Caribbean called Haiti. And there's an earthquake. So I'm staring at it and everybody's staring. Everybody goes quiet for a bit and going, what's going on there? That was an earthquake. But what I remember mostly about was looking at it and the, the, the reporting. This earthquake happened 20 minutes ago. There are 40,000 people dead and missing. And I remember looking at the number going, that's nonsense. What are you talking about? 20 minutes? Nah. You know, I've been in Baghdad that day, 40 people dead. We're used to death. And I was like, nonsense. Anyway, it goes off the screen. Hour later, comes back up. Update. 150,000 people dead and missing. And I'm looking at it and thinking, I went to bed that night sober for a change, and I was lying in bed and I was thinking about it going, is that real, all those people being killed and displaced? And, and it really sunk into my head and meant, you know, I couldn't sleep. So five o'clock in the morning, no word of a lie, I get up, and I go downstairs and I'm making a cup of tea in the, the canteen that we had, and it's pitch black, but in the corner I can see somebody sat there. So I walk over, and it was my business partner. And he said, you're thinking about Haiti, aren't you? I went, yeah, I am. Are you? He goes, yeah. He said to me, what do you think we should do? I said, we should do something. Let's do something. Uh, let's have a look at it. We didn't even know where Haiti was. We had no idea. So over the period of days, I did some due diligence. Learn about Haiti. It's a very corrupt place. It's a, it's a poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, blah, blah, blah. And started to get the, the real facts of what was going on there. And the, there happened to be a doctor that I worked with in the SAS, or a medical guy. He was out now and he's a first responder. He was actually on the ground. This is three days later. So I managed to get a phone call for, to him and I says, what's the situation? He says, Billy, you won't believe it. He goes, it's unbelievable. He says, it's, he says remember Bosnia? I'm like, of course I do. He says, Bosnia on steroids. He says, there's, every building's down. He said, there's animals dead in the street. There's kids dead in the street. There's bodies dead in the oh street. It's horrendous. And he said, I said, what do you need? He's, and I think he's going to say medical stuff. He goes, mate, we need everything. We need an hospital. No one will go in buildings. And he said to me, he says, just there's a little lad here, 10 year old, he's just had his both legs cut off. The tourniquet him in a tent on, the, on an old door. He says, that's what we're doing. He says, he's probably got two hours to live. 
And he says, that's the situation. So I went away from that and I sat with my mate and I said, what do we do? And at the time, we used to build camps for the military as well. So I've got it. Design an hospital for me. I'll go into, I'll get into uh, Port-au-Prince, have a look on the ground, get this, uh, these uh, units in. I'll give it to the locals. I'll take one engineer with me, teach them how to use it. So you get the people involved that really need to be focused away from the death and destruction, local people, because it was easy to do. We'll build this hospital, flat pack, this 47-unit hospital, walk away. And it was just all we wanted from it, no press, no nothing. Just a good feeling say, you know what, we've done something. That's, and it's swear, that's what it was. So that's what I went. I went into Haiti. Didn't quite work out like that. Didn't quite work out at all. You know, the corruption, the problems. Was it very difficult to work with what you had, I guess? Yeah. Over a period of time, while I was there, it was, it was, horrendous. It was horrendous. I was living in a little tent on an old, on the part of the UN base, literally lying on top of body parts. It stunk. And then one day I met Sean Penn, the actor, who I knew anyway from being working as a bodyguard. And he'd come out to do a charity himself. And, I was, and so we started, and I told him, so I've got this donation, I can't get it in. He said, look, I'll take it. So he took it and he built a school called the School of Hope on a piece of land where there was 50,000 refugees, or not refugees, displaced people. So we built this school and it was amazing. All these kids went to it, all the rest of it. And at this time, I then met my girlfriend, wife-to-be, and we were chatting away, and she said, she's just a total trio hugger. Her whole life is about ending poverty. That's all she cares about. Every time, that's why we've got no money. Every time I make $10, she's going, mm, I've got another kid in school. I'm like, geez. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> so anyway, she, she really educated me to what charity was, you know, and she said, look, it's, it, it's not about, it's about giving. Firstly, you give your help, drag people out of all. Secondly, you give your knowledge, your experience, finance. But what we learned from the Asian people, what it really was about was giving dignity. Give them a chance to stand on their own two feet. And an example, you know, three, four months after that, people were still coming over to Haiti, giving what was left of a family. Let's say there's a, a husband and wife, one of the children, one of the children died. So they give them the, the, this child T-shirts, food, this, that, the other. And this little kid had been looking at these people giving them, thankful, but looking at the parents going, why aren't you giving me this? And there's a parent, the parents are looking going, we're useless. We can't give them nothing. So we realized the only thing you give them, give them dignity, give them jobs. And that's all they wanted. They wanted jobs. And help, the, help them help themselves, I, I guess, and, and, and reach their own goals, yeah. enable them. They give them the tools to stand on their own two feet, build their own family, build their own community. And, that's, and we, we got it. We went right. So out of the basis of that, we formed a charity called Rebuild Globally. I'll keep it very simple for you. It's a free phase thing, which phase one and two, I take care of. Phase three, she takes care of. So phase one and two is we, we identify kids, mainly from orphanages who have got nothing. And I mean nothing. We put them into an education program, proper school program. It's four or five years. And they have to do it. We pay for the, the books, the uniform, the tuition, everything. If they, if they start messing around and drop out, they're out. We haven't had one drop out. They want it. I raise the money with my charity stuff, my talks, my books, all this sort of stuff. They go from school. If they do the old program, they stay in it. They get to the end of it, they get a choice. If they're doing well enough, we'll send them to university and we'll pay for it. We get raise the money for them. Or they, they go into a year's job training, roughly. And when I say job, and I take care of that. So I raise the money for that and pay the tuition for that. I'm my wife, of course. And that's everything from holding a pair of scissors, drawing a straight line, cutting leather, sewing, using a sewing machine, driving a vehicle, using a press. So they learn all these skills. Then the turnkey solution to ending this poverty is they've got education, they've got a job skill, now they need a job. 
Then my wife has set up a for-profit called Do May Designs, and you should look at it. They make handbags and women's stuff amazing. And then they go into the, into the factory, and it's a solar-powered factory in Haiti, ethical, all that sort of stuff. Now, we've got kids there, right, Kirsty, who, you know, we found one under a bonnet, car bonnet. He lived under a car bonnet on the street. He's oh, now a manager. Funny. He's a manager wow. in the factory. Well done. Very well educated. He, he's got his own bit of land. He's got his own money. It's amazing. It really is. And it's mainly women, believe it or not, who are running this. We've got a young guy and a young girl who I know, I've known since it was this big. They're bigger than me now, and they run it. They're the managers, the HR. The, it's amazing. When you talk about goals, that's the goal. You know, there's no more enjoyment than that's my paycheck. She tells me, oh, little John Jordan, he's, he's finished his school. He's, he's now into the program. I'm like, brilliant. We've had actually 13 kids, right? 13 go to university. Even with the people who've got money in Haiti, 1%, 1% of the children get a chance to go to university. We've had 13. My wife will correct me. She'll go, no, we haven't. We've got 17 now because I'll never re remember. But yeah, it, and it's amazing. And it's, it's it, it really is, honestly. It's a, I'm going back out there after this. To I, I go out there every now and again. I, I teach them a bit of medical stuff and this, that, the other, and check how things are going. And it's going, I say it's going well. Haiti is a, a hell of a hard place to work. You know, the president was assassinated last year. It's turned into gangs. But we've managed to keep the schools open, the school open, job education, and, and the factory. It's great. She lives and breathes it. What you've done, both of you, is truly incredible. And I have looked at what you're doing and what you've done. Yeah. And it actually makes me very emotional because it, it, it's, it's horrific, horrific. And what you've just told us is, is so difficult to fathom, isn't it? And, and to see that is, is beautiful, to see how it's flourishing, what you've done. You are a novelist, you're a screenwriter, you're a comedian, and I know why, because you're funny and brilliant. Obviously, you're working on one of my favourite shows, SAS Who Dares Wins. I mean, what more could you achieve? What more do you want to achieve, Billy, going forward? And you asked that it's not about goals. You've got to have a goal. You've got to have a reason. Otherwise, you become stagnant. And, and, and some I've learned, I alluded right to the start, the big thing in life, that the biggest obstacle in life and, and thing you'll fight against is time. We haven't got that much time. You don't realise it until you start to get to our age. You know, you, I look at life as a runway, and I know somebody else has used this before, and that runway seems massive as a kid. Then before you know it, in your 20s, you're midway down the runway and you, you're building speed and doing this and doing that. And then before, we get to our age and we're just about to take off off that runway and that's the end of what you can do, you know. So I always try and find something that I can do. And it's always challenging because I say to myself, I know it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. I may not get the goal, but at least by trying for it, I'll be in a better place than I was by just sitting here talking about it. So I do it. And I've got some goals, big goals in front of me, which I'm going to aim for. Whether I get there, I don't know, but I'll try. The other reason thing I say to myself is, again, it's to do with time is, I've got to do it now. It does hurt. It is a lot of work, but there'll come a time, and I don't know when that'll be, where I won't be able to do it. I just physically and mentally won't be able to do it, so I'm going to do it. You know, I'm, I'm challenging doing, I want to go and parachute off, off the level of Mount Everest. I want to go and try and break a world record, and my wife thinks I'm mental. But it keeps me focused. It gives me drive, you know. But in between that, we'll keep doing this. Like I say, I'll head towards that goal, and it might become, for whatever reason, I might not have the time, I might have, not have the resources, or whatever it is. But as I'm going on that journey, I meet somebody else who'll turn me down another avenue, another avenue. 
I never invent, intended to get into TV stuff. That came out from doing bodyguarding. You know, I wasn't intent. I wanted to be what I was. I wanted to be top of my game, looking after these people and doing a good job. That's all I was interested in. And then in between that, oh, these opportunities don't love. And that's why I always say to people, have a goal, go for it. Don't worry if you don't get there. It doesn't matter, but go for it. Set a big goal, you know, and go for it. And as mad as it is, you might get there. Two things, expect it to be hard. Expect to be knocked down and have to go again. If we don't, then it's probably not worth going for anyway. So go for it. Don't be afraid of it. You know, people look at it and go, you want to do what? He's got no chance. But then also, <laughs> you know what? You've either done it or you've gone down a path. You've made a better life for yourself, a better experience. And, you know, it's better than sitting there going, oh, I was going to do it. No, actually, I'm going to do it. Oh, I'll try and do it. Find the time. Stop making excuses. Time and this. I haven't. Yes, you have. Just get up and go. Accept you've got to put effort in. Accept it's going to be hard. And you know what? You'll cross the start line and go for it. My wife thinks I'm mental. Oh, I am so excited. Uh, whether mental or not, I'm so excited to see what you do next. <laughs> Billy, thank you for your time. It has been a joy. You have taught me so much. You are the best. Thank you for being on Give Us Your Goals. Thank you. No, thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please do leave us a review and a rating in your podcast app. And most importantly, tell a friend about it. Give Us Your Goals is brought to you by online investment platform Best Invest. Best Invest believe that a consistent approach to setting goals allows for a far more comfortable future and that your hard-earned money could work harder through being invested. If you'd like help achieving your financial goals, consider Best Invest, who offer a wide range of investments, free expert coaching, smart planning tools, and competitive pricing. Visit bestinvest.co.uk to learn more. Remember that when you invest, your capital is at risk. Best Invest is a trading name of Evelyn Partners Investment Management Services Limited, authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority.